Welcome to Schneps Connects. Today we have Seth Pinsky, who's CEO of the 92nd Street Y, which is quickly approaching its 150th anniversary. The 92nd Street Y is well known and regarded for bringing people together and providing exceptional groundbreaking programs in the performing and virtual arts, literature and culture, adults and children's education, talks on a huge range of topics, health and fitness and Jewish life. Among his past leadership roles, Pinsky worked at RxR Realty, where he led the company's effort to invest in emerging opportunities in the New York region. Earlier, Pinsky oversaw the development of Mayor Bloomberg's $20 billion plan to protect New York from climate change impacts, and from 2008 to 2013, was president of New York City Economic Development Corporation. I also have to mention that he graduated from Columbia College and Harvard Law. Can't leave that out. Yeah. Seth and I met each other uh, several years ago, probably while you were at the EDC and working in the Bloomberg administration, but also sat on the board of the Long Island City Partnership when you were with RxR. So, so great to have you, Seth. Thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So, you know, you, you've really worked in a, in a wide range of industries. You started off in private sector, then you went to government back to private sector and now in nonprofit. So I would really just love to hear, you know, what took you from each of those roles and really what led you to the current role at the 92nd Street Y? I've been very fortunate throughout my career to be able to pursue a number of different passions of mine. And while each individual move may not make sense relative to the position that I held before, what I think unites all of the, the jobs that I've had is that they've all been focused on um, things that, that I really care about. New York City is something that has always been a passion of mine, a, a city that I love and I've lived in for 30 years at this point. Then uh, arts and culture is an area that I've uh, always been interested in. I'm particularly passionate about classical music and so having the opportunity here at the 92nd Street Y to oversee programming across a, a wide array of, of cultural and educational fields um, has been incredibly rewarding. And then, you know, I've been lucky to just have other jobs that have given me the chance to develop skills and to learn how the world works and um, how to get things done. And, and that's been something that I've always thought is the most important part about whatever it is that you do, that it not just be about big ideas, but about translating those ideas into actual progress. Words of wisdom right there. Very true. Yes. So I want to talk about the 92nd Street Y and all the program that you have, because it really is a tremendous institution that offers a lot for, for the public. But first, I just want to talk about the timing. Everyone's dealing with the pandemic, but, but you really made the career change. Was it right before the pandemic started? Yeah, I have um, great timing. Throughout my career, I became president of the city's economic development corporation in 2008, just before mm. Lehman Brothers collapsed. Um, and then I uh, made the decision to join the 92nd Street Y in January of 2020, two and a half months before our whole world changed. Mm. Um, so yeah, I had the opportunity to go through a very unusual time here at the Y. That's interesting though, that your EDC timing, I didn't really think back to that. But I mean, did that in a way prepare you for what you encountered in this role, like knowing that you can get through something in the beginning? Yeah, actually, I, I do think it was valuable. I mean, there were a few things that I learned when I was going through the, the 2008 economic crisis. One was just the importance of communication when you're going mm -hmm. through difficult times, being straight with people, whether they're your employees, your community, people that you report to. 
about what's going well, what's not going well. And then also keeping your eye, uh, not just on the day-to-day crises that you might be dealing with, but thinking also about the long-term and the fact that at some point stability is going to return and that uh, you want to make sure that you use the crisis as an opportunity to think about how you want to emerge from the crisis into whatever the new normal is going to be and how you can adapt and evolve to actually use the crisis for your benefit. And by any way of assessing it, the last year and a half or two years um, has been incredibly painful for the 92nd Street Y as it has been for every organization in New York and probably every organization around the world. But I also like to believe that we've taken the, the downsides of the crisis and we've tried to leverage them in ways that over the long run will make us a stronger institution. Yeah, I mean, I'll let you really, I'll defer to you in terms of talking through some of your largest offerings or ones that are most utilized. But I I personally know 92nd Tree Y has been known for bringing really um, prestigious speakers and people hearing from all different types of leaders in live events. So maybe you could just touch on A, what that looks like, B, how that changed, and then talk through just really what are some of the other most popular programs that you have? Yeah, so the 92nd Street Y is a truly idiosyncratic organization. I'm not sure there's anything like it anywhere else in the world, but we're largely organized into four pillars. One is um, arts and cultural programming. Um, And we do both the presentation of performances. So we do talks, as you mentioned, we have poetry and literature readings. Uh, We do classical music, jazz, American songbook, dance, Uh, musical theater, among many other areas. Um, But we also have schools that teach the arts to adults and children from beginners to professionals. The second of our uh, programming pillars is our children's and family programming, which includes a parenting center that brings people together, even prenatal um, through early childhood, um, and then into our nursery school, our after-school program, and our camps. The third pillar is what we call our community center pillar, Um, which includes our senior center, as well as our gym and our residences. Uh, We actually are home to a 300-bed dormitory, uh, which most people don't know about. And then our fourth pillar um, is our Jewish programming. Um, The 92nd Street Y was founded by the Jewish community um, in the 1870s and has always had Jewish programming as an important part of what it does. You know, up until March of last year, almost everything that we did was in person. Um, and we were incredibly successful and um, were a hive of activity. And then when COVID hit, uh, as was true with all organizations um, across the country, uh, we were forced to shut our doors. And initially, the question was, you know, how does an organization that is all about bringing people together in person survive something like a pandemic? And very quickly, the decision that we made was, that we were going to take everything that we did in person and rather than go into hibernation or suspended animation, we were going to continue to do it, but do it online. And over the course of what literally was a weekend, we went from an exclusively in-person organization to an exclusively virtual organization. And that transition, while difficult, actually was incredibly revelatory for us because uh, what we came to realize was that the programming that we've always done for what essentially was a local audience um, had resonance not only across 
the New York metropolitan area, and not only across the United States, but all over the world. And so during the first year of the pandemic, we ended up producing about 1,700 original online programs, everything wow. from classes to performances um, and everything in between. We ended up attracting around 4 million views online, um, which just to give you a sense, pre-pandemic, we would have about 300,000 people walk through our doors for our in-person programming. So an order of magnitude larger. And those views ended up coming from people in all 50 states and in over 200 countries around the world. And going forward, um, even as we've um, now begun to reopen our doors and we have a full uh, range of programming once again occurring within our building on 92nd Street and Lexington Avenue, um, we're never going to stop doing the online programming. And that's going to remain an important part of who we are um, and what we do going forward. It really reveals the demand. The demand is truly there on a global scale. Yeah. And, and you know, what's what's been really interesting was in some ways we were limited by our physical location. And what I mean by that is that we're extremely lucky to be in New York, which in many ways is the center of the world. But even being in New York um, at the center of the world, you know, not everyone lives in New York. Not everyone comes through New York. And what we found when we went online was all of a sudden, not only were we able to reach audiences from all over the world, but we were also able to pull in talent from all over the world. Mm. So by way of example, we moved um, our adult education program from uh, an in-person program to an online program. And we created a new platform, which we called 9-2-U. And under the old model, our adult education classes would have a professor from NYU coming up on uh, Thursday afternoons and teaching 10 or 12 people in a classroom in the building about Shakespeare's uh, plays or the history of music. And that was great and that was successful. But when we went online, we found not only that those 12 people could suddenly become 100 people or 300 people, but also that we didn't have to limit ourselves to educators who happened to be in New York City, mm. but we could pull in Pulitzer Prize winners from across the country. We could pull in famous authors. We had people like David Petraeus teaching online classes. We had uh, Michelin-starred chefs in France teaching classes. And wow. it, it opened up a whole new world for us. Um, and um, as I said, it's one that uh, even as, as we begin to bring people back together in person, we're never going to retreat from that world. So you said you have everything from education to housing. Have there been any other parts that have evolved, such as the programming that you discussed? I mean, the truth is that everything has changed. And one of the observations that, that we've made, and we spend a lot of time talking about this, is that what changed is not just people coming in person versus people coming online, but the way people engage with one another, what people are looking for in their lives has fundamentally changed as a result of this pandemic. And um, there are programs that in the past, when we would do them in our building, we would know that hundreds of people were going to show up. And when we do them now, um, the demand turns out to be lower. And then conversely, there are other programs that in the past would have had um, no demand at all. And all of a sudden, we're finding that um, people are really interested in whatever the topic or, or program is. And we're taking from that is that we really have to relearn who our audiences are and, and what they want out of their lives. And that we can't just assume that what worked before is going to work again in the future that we have to rebuild all of our programs um, from the ground up. And in some ways that's 
scary and exhausting. You know, you have a place that's been around for 145 plus years and um, has always um, been successful and to have to start over again is an exhausting proposition in some ways. Um, but in other ways, it's really exciting um, because mm -hmm. it means that we can rethink who we are entirely um, and reimagine the ways that we can provide service to our community, which is now a global community, uh, in ways that we never had before. Yeah, that's very interesting for you to say that because I think a lot of organizations, particularly legacy, you know, organizations, whether it's nonprofit or for profit, struggle with the ability to change simply because that's the way it's been done. And this really kind of like threw all the chess pieces off the board to be able to evolve. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that for some organizations, that will be a bridge too far. Um, and making that adjustment is going to simply be too difficult for them. For other organizations, you know, they'll they'll realize that this is a moment in time and, and it's it's not just a burden, but it's it's a benefit as well. And they'll try to take advantage of that benefit. And we hope that we're in that latter category rather than the former category. Yeah, it's so interesting because I see the exact parallel in media you know, the evolution to digital and, and doing things differently. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting that you raised that because um, we actually looked at the experience of the media as we transitioned online. And something that became clear to us very early on was that a mistake that many media organizations made when they went digital, um, which was um, to offer all of their content for free, mm -hmm. um, was a mistake that we had to make sure we didn't repeat. Um, and, you know, we're not a for-profit organization, so our goal is not to maximize every dollar um, from the content that we create, but we have to make sure that we're bringing in at least enough money to keep our lights on and to continue to offer the services that we offer. And so we experimented in a number of different ways with how it was that, that we would derive revenue and value from the content that we created. And we ultimately, I think, came up with a fairly successful model. And although um, I wouldn't say at this point that our digital programming is covering its costs. We are certainly generating a meaningful amount of revenue from that content. And there's at least a path that we can see to how that um, content eventually can become self-sustaining. Yeah, well, that was actually one of my questions, not just for the content, but really for all of your services, whether some of it is free or all of it is paid or it's under a membership umbrella. Is it a, is it a hybrid of all three of those? It's a hybrid of two of those. Some of our programming is free because we offer it as a service um, to our global community. Some of it is ticketed um, and people buy tickets. We generally have not followed a membership model, but um, as we continue to evolve, um, I think that that's a direction that we're likely to move in. And our hope is that that will allow us to give more flexibility to our patrons um, while also creating a more predictable revenue stream for our business. You know, I can't not bring up that yesterday was, I guess it was Giving Tuesday, you know, the big promotion. Where do you derive other revenue sources from besides, you know, generating revenue from people utilizing your services on the corporate end or, or giving? Well, and I, I will note that actually Giving Tuesday was launched by the 92nd Street Y. Wow, I didn't it know was, that. Uh, yeah, That's it was cool. It was incubated at the 92nd Street Y and, and was spun out a year or two ago um, into a separate organization. It's an amazing organization um, and really an amazing global movement. For us, uh, in quote unquote normal pre-COVID times, 
uh, we derived about 70% of our revenue from earned income from our actual programs and about 30% from philanthropy, um, which was a combination of individual donors and foundations and corporate philanthropy and sponsorship. The pandemic, of course, shook all of that up and you know we saw our revenues decline fairly substantially. They're um, now starting to recover, which is um, which is positive. Um, but you know I, I think that that combination will continue to be a combination that will be important for us. Like all arts organizations, all cultural organizations, it's very difficult to make your programming accessible um, to the wide and diverse audience that we hope to reach and completely cover your costs just from ticket sales or uh, tuition. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a combination of both. Well, I have to ask you some questions just because of your background, obviously, in, in government, politics, and economic point of view. What do you see in terms of arts and culture under the new leadership? Because we have all new leadership politically coming into New York City, not just a new mayor, but all new city council. Are there specific things under arts and culture that, that are like at top of your list in terms of communicating to those elected officials? Yeah, you know, the thing that that gives me some real hope is that um, we did a series where we interviewed um, all of the major mayoral candidates. Um, and one of the questions that we asked, not surprisingly, given who we are, was whether these uh, candidates viewed arts and culture as um, something that was worth prioritizing um, in the current environment. And um, to a person, every one of them said that it was. And what we heard from them, which I think is right, is that arts and culture really serve three purposes um, in the city. One is um, that they're part of what gives New York its, its soul. They're you know, an important part of what civilizes human beings and, and makes us different from um, you know, any other species. And so you know, in and of themselves, they have value. But they also, in addition to that, are an important economic engine um, themselves. Uh, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people um, generating billions and billions of dollars um, in economic activity who are employed in the arts and culture sector. And so, you know, it's, it's one of the engines of the city's economy. But the third reason, which I think may be the most important reason of all, is that if you look at the city's economy over the last 20 years, what's made New York City so successful um, is the fact that um, we've been able to attract um, an incredibly diverse and very talented workforce to the mm -hmm. city. And that workforce in turn has attracted businesses, which in turn have attracted more workers and so on. And we've created this virtuous cycle. And really fundamental to attracting that talent is making New York a place that's exciting, that people want to be in. And yes. the magnetic infrastructure, as I like to call it, um, that is at the heart of that attraction is entertainment, arts, culture. And so um, even if you put aside the soul enriching aspects of arts and culture, and even if you put it aside the actual economic output of the arts and culture um, industry, you have to really view arts and culture as an important part of the formula for the recovery of New York, because this is what anchors talent to the city. And Talent for us is what oil is to Saudi Arabia. It's our mm -hmm. most important resource. And so, you know, my hope is um, that based on the conversations that we had with all of the mayoral candidates, but especially based on some of the things that Mayor-elect um, Adams is saying, that 
that is recognized um, by the new administration and that the mayor-elect will put around him leaders who similarly recognize that. And, you know, I think that there are lots of different ways in which the administration can support our industry because our industry was really battered um, by COVID. Um, yes. you know, as you can imagine, um, theaters were not filling their seats uh, during the pandemic and museums were not filling their galleries during the pandemic. And it took a real um, economic toll on a lot of organizations. And so certainly, you know, continuing to support um, arts and cultural institutions financially is something that would be incredibly meaningful for us. But I would add on top of that, that there are other things that can be done, you know, whether it's just making it easier to operate as a business, because fundamentally all sure. cultural organizations are businesses and New York does not make it easy um, to be a business. Something that um, the mayor-elect has talked about is wanting to turn city government from an enemy of business to an ally. And I think that would certainly be helpful for our sector. And you know, another area that I would also point to is that a lot of um, uh, organizations, um, including the 92nd Street Y, receive support from city government. And the process of actually translating the promised support into actual dollars in our coffers is a very cumbersome and difficult process. Um, and if the city could just make it a little easier to navigate that, I think it would make a meaningful uh, difference for a lot of organizations. You know, going outside of arts and culture, putting on your economic development hat, what do you think about the economy in New York City? What's your take? Well, I, I think that the, the fundamental strengths um, that have powered the economy uh, for the last couple of decades remain. If you look at the real estate market, what's clear from that is that while people have left New York, people are coming to New York as well. And it's continuing to be a place that the best and the brightest want to live in. And, and that's very important. I also think that some of the fundamental challenges that the city's economy faced pre-COVID remain as well. Um, there is an incredible level of inequality. Um, affordability remains a challenge. Um, and I think that um, you know, those are issues that we certainly have to address. Um, but I think that in the near term, we really need to um, focus on uh, what I would say is um, some, pretty, some pretty serious challenges that we're facing. And, and most concerning to me is the change that's been occurring in work life and mm -hmm. going from a world where most people who worked commuted to a place of, of business, an office or um, somewhere like that. And many of those people uh, ended up working in the city. Pre-COVID, we had about 1.6 million office workers in New York. And while they accounted for about a third of our jobs, they accounted for about two thirds of our economic output. Sure. Um, and right now we have about 28 or so percent of our office workers actually back in the office. Um, and what is particularly concerning to me is that of the 1.6 million pre-COVID workers, about 500,000 of those people commuted to New York from outside of the city. And about 70% of those people had commutes of 60 minutes or longer. And those are people who, all things being equal, would probably be happy never to set foot in New York again to work. And that's a ton of economic activity that we could potentially lose permanently. And so I do hope that the new mayor, as, long, as well as the governor, um, are paying close attention to that and are thinking of ways that we can encourage workers to come back to the office. Yeah, a lot of people don't think of that, how far people come to, to get in and how that really is a 
critical component of the overall economy. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's not just filling offices um, so that um, commercial landlords can continue to collect rent from tenants. It's also about the small businesses that those sure. workers support, the business tourism that supports hotels and hotel workers and theaters and museums. Um, it's, it's really an entire ecosystem that um, existed around that office workforce, which at this point continues um, to be down substantially from the levels it was at pre-COVID. Yeah, the husband and wife that ran a coffee cart right in front of my office building closed. You know, I mean, that's how they made their living. Yeah, no, and, and survive without uh, traffic. Absolutely, and I and I think that's the piece of this that's missed. I think a lot of people in their heads think that when you talk about or office workers, you're talking about people earning million dollar salaries working on Wall Street or in in tech firms, and certainly that's a part of it. And by the way, they're important people in in the economy of New York. But it's not just about them. It's about the person that they buy a coffee from every sure. day. It's the person who shines their shoes uh, at the shoe shine store. Uh, it's the person whose um, pocketbooks get repaired at the pocketbook repair store. It's yep. all of those people as well who are impacted by what's going on. Probably more so than anybody else, honestly. Absolutely. They can't do those jobs remotely. No. And in many cases, it's going to be hard for them to find jobs that pay similarly um, outside of our central business districts. Yeah. What would you like to leave people with? You've pivoted a lot in terms of 92nd Street. Why it's almost been two years now that it's been under your helm. What do you see as the future? What would you like people to know about the 92nd Street? Why in terms of the future or offerings? The 92nd Street Y going forward is going to fundamentally be the same place it's always been, which is a place that brings people together um, and enriches individuals. Um, what's going to change though going forward is how we do that and the scale and the scope of our community. And we, during the pandemic, learned that we're able to touch lives not only on Manhattan's Upper East Side or in New York City or the New York metropolitan area, but we're able to do it across the country and around the world. And that's something that we're going to continue to do. Um, and our hope is that in reaching a, a broader audience, we'll be able to bring the special benefits that people have, have seen us provide to them for 150 years to uh, people of every background and um, with an even broader array of interests. Listen, it's great to see you leading the organization and able to make that huge pivot. And I hope they know they're lucky to have you in that leadership role. You know, I think you're a super intelligent guy and obviously you're uniquely positioned to know a lot about New York City. Do you ever think you'll get back into, into the political world? Who knows? I, I don't try not to look too far down the road. I will say that um, I loved public service. Um, I think that it's something that everyone at some point in their lives should have the opportunity to do. It's important to give back. And if the right opportunity presents itself some at some point down the road, I certainly would consider it. What a politically correct answer. <laughs> Well, Seth, it's great to catch up with you. You're doing great work, and I really appreciate your time and, and great to reconnect. Thank you. It's so good to talk to you, and I wish you only uh, good luck, and hopefully that luck will translate to the team playing in the stadium uh, behind your head as well. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Make sure to get a new episode of Schneps Connects every week wherever you get your podcasts or stream us online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com. 